Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. I hope you've got your warm drink in hand. My guest today is Mr. Matt Husam. Matt lives in New York City and works with Cities Rise, an organization committed to transforming mental health globally through local innovation, coalition building, and youth-led action. Matt is passionate about using leadership development and community organizing to advance mental health and racial justice and has supported a range of social change initiatives from community-based hip-hop-rooted youth mental health programs to working with the Ethiopian and South African governments. On this episode, Matt shares his personal experience dealing with mental health challenges and discusses what he thinks youth need to thrive. Let's get to the episode. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, my name is Matt. I am speaking to you from Toronto, Canada, where I grew up. I work in global youth mental health, and, and my entry into this work was as a college student, learning about and fighting Canadian government cuts to refugee health care coverage. Um, since then, I've been very lucky and privileged to work on a, a range of global health and development programs, everything from hip-hop-rooted youth mental health programs based in Toronto to working with the Ethiopian and South African governments on larger-scale projects. And um, my work in global youth mental health, which is very informed by my experiences with anxiety and OCD, focuses on how do we work with youth leaders and system leaders in cities. And right now we work in four cities in five cities in four countries to reimagine and take steps toward building more equitable and resilient mental health systems for everyone. Can you tell us why mental health is a passion point for you? I think my entry, my initial interest in mental health was based on the need. This was a time in my life. I was just finishing college and, and working my first real global health jobs. And at that time, I was very much a generalist. I cared about a lot of things and also didn't care about anything particularly. And so I was drawn to mental health by both the immense need and the immense neglect and the failures of our global community in addressing mental health. So I was really struck by statistics like 800,000 people dying by suicide every year, which is one person every 40 seconds. And suicide being a leading cause of death for young people. And then the statistics like, you know, one in four people in most places in the world, high, middle, low income countries in the global north and global south, struggling with anxiety or depression. And just that real immense need, I think, initially drew me in. I think as I continue to walk my own journey with my own mental health, the mental health of the people around me, my loved ones. I think my own lived experience and the lived experience of others also really informs why I do this work. And then now having chosen to really focus and go deep in the field, I think I've learned that mental health is such an intersectional challenge. When you look at all the different challenges we're facing today, whether it's the pandemic racial injustices, other things, mental health really intersects with all of those things. And so that really draws me to this work. So you mentioned your own struggles with anxiety and OCD. How did you recognize that you had a problem? Yeah, it took a while. I think it, it took maybe three or four years of, of really struggling. I remember being in college and actually sort of counting 
the the hours of a day and kept like, oh, I was anxious more hours than I was not in this day or this week or this like five week period. And at the same time, not really knowing what to do with that, whether it was anxiety or obsessive thinking, and just sort of, you know, going along, I, I never really considered seeking therapy or anything else like that, despite I was studying public health and was relatively aware of what mental health was. I think my own personal wake-up call actually came when I was first working in mental health. And I had this boss who was a really, really wonderful mentor, one of the warmest, kindest, and most open people I'd ever met. And they, in a public session with some of the younger people who were, who were just working there that summer, was very open about sort of their own mental health struggles and their really good experiences seeking care and having access to care in Canada being part of the reason why they did the work that they did. And so that really flipped a switch for me where this person who I deeply respected, recognizing that they could struggle, flipped the switch for me. And I was like, oh, I guess anyone can struggle. And I guess I do struggle as well. And so that really set me on a path to towards seeking care for myself. And, and then funnily enough, it was actually a, a Suits episode where Lewis lit one of the, the characters who's sort of a bit villainized and also sort of sometimes lovable, had this really emotional conversation with his therapist. And I was like, okay, I, I guess I'm going to go look at what uh, accessing a therapist would be like. Really great story. So it's a mix of someone being open about their own experiences and Lewis Litt, a fictional character. And what was that like when you actually sought out the therapist? It was hard. It, it was, I think, a, a really amazing step. I think just the act of like, okay, I am experiencing this problem. I'm going to seek care. That was very empowering. And I think sort of unlocked a, a next step in my own mental health journey. And I was living in Washington, D.C. without health insurance. And so... Uh, went to the clinic where I could pay $20 a session to do therapy with a grad student who was videotaped, which was not at all helpful for me being vulnerable. I, I remember I would, and I admitted this to my therapist, I, I would try to come up with excuses to skip almost every session. And, you know, I would, I would still go maybe 75% of the time. So, so there were hard aspects of it. And it was just a really important step in my journey. And I did find a lot of sort of helpful and productive tools out of it. But that first experience seeking therapy, I didn't really open up about some of the, the root issues and things I was really struggling with. And it was sort of the next time when I accessed therapy, maybe a year or two later, when that was like, it took maybe three sessions for me to share things that I thought I would never share with anyone and for that to be very, very productive. And I suspect in that situation, there was no videotape. No, there was no videotape, yeah. thank goodness. That's a really interesting point. I wonder if they've never thought about that <laughs> in their training courses. Like maybe we shouldn't have the video. Maybe it would almost be better if the professor sits in the room to observe you than to just have a camera there. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Did you ever tell that um, 
supervisor or mentor that he made this difference for you? Yep, I did. And um, that was good to be able to share that. Um, I think he and then I, I had another boss sort of right after him who was also very, very open about their own mental health problems. And yeah, I appreciate I'm friends with both of them and being able to share and also share how I've even the fact that I'm on this podcast speaking with you, I think was in part sparked by both of their openness. So it's sort of like these ripples of people being vulnerable and sharing their own stories that that helps break down stigma one step at a time. So in terms of stigma, I guess, as you say, you're on this podcast because you want to help break down stigma. Do you feel like you experience stigma in your own journey? Definitely, yes. I I paused because it's always a a weird experience answering that question because, you know, I I work in mental health. And while I am not a clinician, I don't have formal training in mental health. I would describe myself as like very much a mental health nerd. Like I'll wake up before work and be reading articles that I find on Twitter and sort of figuring out what's new in the community. And so I spend all my time really caring about mental health, learning about it. And despite that, experience a lot of stigma towards myself, toward others, even that period, you know, after that first experience seeking therapy, it took me maybe, it took another like year or two of me saying like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm over the major hump of my, my struggles with mental health before and thinking like, oh, these are just regular things. I don't need to, there's no point in seeking care before reaching a wake up call of like, oh no, I am actually really struggling. And there's, there's no issue with me seeking treatment. Um, so that gap between you know me spending all of my a good chunk of my time thinking about researching, learning about mental health, and yet still having these barriers within myself and barriers that I put up towards others is sort of a weird contrast. It is a, an interesting contrast to highlight, and I'm glad that you highlighted it too because I guess some people might feel. Oh, well, if they know a lot about mental health, if they work in the field of mental health, surely this is not a problem for them. They've got it under control. But I think you highlight that, no, it's something that we can all struggle with, whether you're an expert or well-read in the field or not. And so I think that's key for people to recognize. Maybe what you're feeling is is not an isolated feeling. Yeah, it's one thing to recognize that mental health is a challenge. I think if we, you know, look at the world now with the pandemic and how much mental health is front of mind for people. So it's one thing to know, like, okay, this is a challenge. If, If you ask me what depression is, I could probably tell you what it is. And another thing to really accept that it's okay to not be okay. It's it's okay to be, the, the right word isn't weak, mm-hmm. but to be vulnerable, to, to not have all of your stuff together all the time. And I think that really accepting that for myself is a lifelong journey that, you know, I'll keep making progress on. Okay, so you, you first worked with the grad student. That was hard to open up to because the dynamics of the, of the session did it make you feel comfortable, I guess, with the camera and, and the person being in training? And then you, a few years later, you had someone where you were able to open up. I think you said within three sessions, you started to, to really get comfortable with that person. And then how long before you saw changes or improvement in whatever it is you were struggling with before you started to feel more yourself. So with that, that second experience seeking care, it was it was by that third session that I saw really meaningful changes. 
um, just with, and it was just talk therapy and no medication at that time. I still struggled a lot and I was really struggling with obsessive thinking at that time. So sort of, you know, having thoughts that were irrational and scary and things that I, I logically would not at all pursue or, or even think about regularly, but sort of the the way my mind was working or the way my mind works is once that irrational thought comes, then I fixate on it and sort of think about it over and over and over. And so being able to admit that to someone and talk about the specifics of it and for the therapist to be like, yeah, lots of people struggle with this. And there, are, everyone who struggles with this is terrified to talk about it or, or to do, do things about it because they're scary thoughts and they're irrational thoughts. I think just that recognition was very helpful for me. And then from there, you know, we would think about different techniques or different ways of addressing them. And that I think those changes were a lot slower, but that initial recognition of this is the problem and it's a completely normal problem was huge for me. And so throughout the experience, or I guess through your sessions, part of the way this person helps you is that they maybe give you tools. Okay, so every time you get a thought like that, here are some techniques that you can practice to um, minimize the thoughts, I suppose, right? Yeah. I think to uh, the, the tricky thing with anxiety and obsessive thinking is if you try to make them go away, that actually makes them like get bigger. Like if you tell someone, don't think about a black Jeep, they will just keep thinking about a black Jeep over and over and over. So the, the techniques were helpful in sort of the way you described, but it was more of like, okay, when it comes up, what is, what is your relationship with it? And are you gonna, you know, think about it like, oh, this is terrifying. I'm going to try and like destroy it or put it down or not think it? Or are you going to say like, oh, that's a thought. Okay, I'll sort of hold it more loosely, let it pass by and, and keep going on with my life. You mentioned medication. Was that part of your healing journey? Is it something you needed to take? It was totally optional. Um, it was a, yeah, antidepressant was sort of a recommendation from the therapist. Like, oh, this, this has been proven to be helpful for reducing the anxiety. And the obsessive thinking especially was the, the thing that we were targeting. And so she's, she recommended uh, checking out a psychiatrist if I wanted to. And she sort of left that very open to what I was open to and what I was looking for. And so I did. That experience was interesting and challenging. I... I, that was my first time ever seeing a psychiatrist. And I remember, and I imagine this is part of, you know, the system that they're set up in and sort of how they have to go through patients. And they have a very different relationship with uh, clients compared with therapists, I think. But I remember sort of being quizzed about my life and my struggles and then getting a prescription for an antidepressant and having no and having no idea like should i take this this is scary i don't really know again despite you know working in mental health and knowing a lot um and so i think after that experience it was really learning from friends and people i trusted about their experiences with medication that led me to ultimately decide to take it and it was helpful for me but the 
side effects weren't great. And so I, you know, tried it and tried different doses for maybe a month or two. And it does take quite a bit of time to sort of get to a, a point of effectiveness, but then ended up deciding not to continue taking it also because I was sort of switching between health insurances and providers as well. You mentioned that you kind of left that office, that experience, not feeling quite sure. Do I take it? Do I not take it? Why didn't you ask the person? I guess, why did you leave feeling confused? Like, did you not feel comfortable pursuing the questions with the provider? What do you think happened there? The provider, from what I remember, made the prescription in like the last four minutes of the visit and then had to go to um, their next client. And so... I guess I didn't really know at the time, like what my questions were. I think in my head, it was like, okay, medication is sort of scary to me. And it didn't feel like the space to like express that fear, both due to time, and then also just with the rushed nature of the appointment. And so I, you know, if I had thought about it a lot more, maybe I might have had like more specific questions about specific side effects. But at that point, it was just like, huh, this is sort of scary. I don't, I don't know if I want to take this step. One other thing you mentioned earlier was your psychologist. How did you find the person? The therapist um, was at the the graduate school that I was at. Okay. So that was very convenient. It was sort of in the basement of the place where we studied. And so that was... So what tips do you have, Matt, I guess, for people who are considering care? You know, how would you recommend they find a provider? If they're second guessing it, what should they think about? I can speak to to what has been most helpful for me. I think that just taking the step of learning, I think, has been really important to me. You know, not viewing it as like a black and white decision, which I tend to do a lot in my life. Of, you know, either I'm seeking care or not, and I need to really decide, as opposed to saying like, oh, I'm curious about what other people experience and what I might be experiencing, what their experiences have been with seeking care. And so why don't I Google that or hop on a Reddit forum or ask a friend or ideally someone that you trust. And I think taking that learning approach, taking that curiosity approach is what's most helpful for me. Because these things can be really scary and having folks that I trust. And then just hearing the experiences of other people with lived experience has been super helpful. You talk about people that you trust. For example, you mentioned when you were thinking about medication, you spoke to your friends. And we've touched on stigma briefly. Um, Were you afraid when you took it to your friends? Or were you already fairly certain that they would be open and receptive and not judge you. Was that a concern at all when you thought about bringing this up and asking for help from them? Yeah, not for me, very thankfully. I think both with sort of my group of colleagues and friends, there are numerous folks who are quite open about their own struggles and, and the treatment that they seek. And so, you know, the, the folks that I was approaching to talk about medication with were folks who were very open about the medications that they took and how helpful that had been for them. And then we're also very open about the trade-offs and the side effects and things like that. And at the same time, I think earlier in my life, when I didn't have as 
or I guess when when we were all sort of at stages of trying to figure out like what is mental health, what are what are and and just like transitioning into adulthood, I think then it would it was a lot scarier to talk to even um, close friends um, because it was so much less normalized. Whereas now that I guess we were adults and we all have struggled a lot, and it's a lot of us have um, accessed care. It's a lot easier and a lot more straightforward. If there's someone who is not sure about, I think I'm struggling, I'm not super sure, I kind of want to bring it up, but I don't know to who, I, I'm just not certain about the whole thing. Yeah. What do you think should be their first step? I think it can be tough because, you know, based on each person's circumstance, you never know how the people around you will respond. And at the same time, I think if there are people that you love and trust and who you know that care care about you, at least from my experience, I think that they would always, regardless of how immediately helpful their answer is, regardless of like how much they know about mental health or how much you know stigma there might be sort of in your circle, my experience is that the people who care about me would much rather know about a struggle that I'm experiencing or something that I'm considering than not know. And then sort of the work of figuring out like, oh, how do I then respond? How do I actively listen to this friend? How do I be, be productive and helpful as a person, um, as someone who cares about them? That can come later if, if that hasn't already, that work hasn't already been done. But that first step of just knowing that the people around you are struggling, I think, the the people around you will really value that. And what about a tip for someone who's on the receiving end? So your friend comes to share that I'm struggling. From your experience, what are some helpful things to to say or to do in order to show support for someone who's being vulnerable with you and sharing a concern that they have? I think sometimes there can be a fear around, you know, when you're talking about really serious things, like let's say it's suicidal ideation, that talking about it can sort of make it worse or things like that. And I, I believe the, the evidence I most recently read is that actually talking about suicidal ideation doesn't make it worse and can actually be helpful. And so one piece of advice would be that, you know, not to give advice on those things, but talking about them and sort of having them in the open and creating a, a space and an environment where someone is able to talk about whatever they're struggling with, no matter how light or serious it is, can be one of the most helpful things. I think the other most helpful tip that I found for myself is I'm someone who likes fixing things. I don't like ambiguity or open problems and my immediate inclination can be to be like, all right, you have this problem. Let's talk about like, what are its roots causes and how do we address it? And that's almost 100% of the time not helpful, especially as an initial response. And, you know, when, when people are being vulnerable and sharing something with you that they might not have shared with others, they're looking for someone to listen, to maybe ask clarifying questions, to really create a space that holds them and, and supports them. And realistically, like if someone has been struggling with this for a while, 
they've probably thought of every possible solution that you could ever offer. So I think one of the most important things is to not try to solve problems or be a savior or answer the problems, but to just actively listen. And Matt, as you reflect on your mental health journey, your personal experience, and you look back, is there anything you would have done differently? Oh, so many things. (laughs) Um, And at the same time, you know, I I think there are lots of like struggles and challenges and and lots of beautiful and good things that have come out of that. Probably the, the biggest thing I mentioned earlier, I made a side comment about, why don't you hop on a Reddit forum and that so there specifically with obsessive thinking and the OCD that especially it took I think the first time I experienced that was maybe 10 years before I like hopped on that reddit forum and I'd like never talked to it talked about it with a therapist or a friend until that point and you know 10 years of being scared of some of your own thoughts which is not a very comfortable place to to live in of just being fearful of your own mind and then one day it had it was becoming too much and i was like okay why don't i google and then i just like literally typed in is it normal to and then put in an experience or a thought and then found like full reddit forums and online forums of communities of people discussing it and that was i was just i was like staring at my phone sort of incredulously like this would have been a lot different if I had just Googled this maybe five years earlier, 10 years earlier. I, I think I was afraid to like ask the question and I'd be like, no, this isn't, and find out like, no, this isn't normal. But I think that's the main thing. I think I would have sort of tried to be more curious about it earlier in my life. So am I hearing maybe that um, one or two lessons learned would be maybe don't wait so long or, you know, look, research it earlier and maybe find community? Yeah. That point of finding community is is so important and hard, um, but I think it's one of the most important things in whether it's recovery from something or just you know life generally, whether mental health or not. I'm imagining that that's kind of like what the Reddit forum did for you. It's like, oh, I'm not alone. Here are other people who are thinking and feeling what I am feeling, and so yeah, I'm not alone. There are others here. I can toss this question out and someone might have an answer. Yeah, that recognition that, you know, whatever you're you're experiencing when it comes to mental health, there are probably thousands or if not millions of people around the world experiencing the same, whether it's a joy or a struggle or a challenge. And it's a really shared experience as people. And one of the things you mentioned in your opening was that you work with in the domain of youth mental health. And so what do you think young people need to thrive in this domain? At the same time, like quite a few things. And then I think there are so many like innate capacities that people and young people already have. And so I think it's more about how to, how young people can sort of be in environments and have relationships that really enable them to use those innate capacities and strengths. When I think about young people's well-being and mental health, I try to take a systemic lens. So when you look at an individual young person, what are the, what's their own mental health journey like? What coping skills do they have? What sort of, we call them protective factors, whether it's self-esteem or hope or confidence or self-compassion or other things like that. Then when you zoom out a little bit and you have a young person and you look at the relationships and 
the people around them, whether it's a trusted adult, a peer, a teacher, uh, their family, and how are those relationships doing? Are they promoting their mental health and well-being? And then you zoom out another level and you look at sort of the systems and the environments that are around and that are shaping people's mental health, whether it's, you know, to what extent is systemic racism influencing a young person? To what extent is their community invested in? Is there affordable housing? Is there a strong education system? And other things like that are absolutely crucial to mental health. And so when you look at those three different levels, the individual, the relationships around them, and then the systems and the society that surrounds them, it's sort of, you need a combination of all of those things because all of those things sort of interact with each other. And I think the tendency is often to just focus on the individual. And we live in a world that's sort of commoditizing self-care and sort of selling self-care products all the time. But if you equip a young person to help have self-compassion and hope and all these sorts of protective factors and the relationships around them and the systems around them don't support that, that will be nowhere near sufficient. I really like that analysis and how you broke that down, Matt, the individual, their relationships and their systems. How do we get the systems and relationships around them to support what you've just described? It's a tough question because I wish there were more cookie cutter answers or manuals that we could follow. I think the the complexity of how all those different levels, the individual, their relationships and the system around them, it is super complex and also very intersectional. Like all these three different levels are interacting with each other and there's no real policy solution that solves everything at every level. And so I think one of the really important things is how people with lived experience, both with lived experience with mental health problems, but then also lived experience with how do these relationships and systems intersect and influence a a young person or a person's mental health. So them either being in positions of authority or decision-making or being really meaningfully engaged as people are making decisions. Because I think it's one thing to have an academic or an analytical understanding of how relationships and systems shape mental health. And then it's another thing to have actual lived experience and firsthand experience with both what you need, but then also what do my friends need? What does my family need? What does my community need? And so I think the engagement of those people with lived experience or them being in the decision-making and authority roles is really important to pushing forward progress in this area. Okay. So it's bringing them to the table, consulting them, or I guess even better having them in positions of leadership to help address some of these systemic issues. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the, and this was of course happening, this has happened throughout human history but has really come to the forefront and is a lot more visible since the beginning of the pandemic is how different communities have really bolstered the existing ways how they were supporting each other, whether it's, you know, a church, the local church in my community, housing the community fridge, which anyone can get food from and is really maintained by the community. And then sort of new ways of mutual aid and community care popping up. I think that there are a lot of really grassroots efforts that people and organizations will will undertake 
And then the translation of those efforts into larger scale policy or systematization of them, I think really is helped by having you know, people with lived experience and, and people with experience working on those types of efforts and at that type of level in the places of power where then the larger scale sort of funding or budget decisions are made. That's interesting. I like in your example, it sounds like, like, for example, the church and the community pantry, that already sounds like a mixture of individual and community, because it's that relationship building of people who we knew around us and building some sort of resiliency. How do we get to the policymakers and sit at the table with them to move toward eliminating the need for a community pantry in the first place? I suppose that goes back to what you were saying about how complex and intertwined it all is. Yeah. I think that, and I also, you know, don't really have a, a clean or clear-cut answer. I do think even even just building on this example of, you know, the community fridges or the community pantries, I think something that's been encouraging, especially, you know, despite doing global work here in New York City, just getting to know my local community better, is you can really tell when an elected official, whether it's a city council member an assembly representative is actually, you know, spending time in these spaces and really pushing these sorts of things forward and, you know, and, and getting to know the people who, who run the fridges or run the mutual aid groups, they can very easily tell you, you know, which city council members actually care and are spending time in those sorts of spaces and which ones might just go for the photo op and then, and then leave. And so I think, I've been learning more and more how, whether it's at the local politics level or state or national or global, um, there are you know, really committed civil servants or politicians who, who will spend time in these spaces and will engage people with lived experience. Or, and as a lot of the time, these people have lived experience themselves or have done this grassroots work themselves. As we come to a close, do you have any closing thoughts? Parting words for the audience. Well, the main parting thought would be that just encouragement to, you know, if anything of this conversation sparked curiosity or wanting to learn more about your own mental health or mental health or to, to talk to someone, whether it's a therapist or a friend or a family member, to sort of let that curiosity grow, to not sort of shut it down, but to sit with it, to take small steps towards it. And then I think the other reflection that I'm having just on how our conversation has went is the idea of who has expertise in, in mental health. And I would not at all consider myself an expert and, and don't want to consider myself an expert. And at the same time, I think each of us, when it comes to mental health, has so many insights just as people and living and going through the challenges and the joys that we do each day have so much to offer when it comes to insights about our own mental health and what it takes to thrive or flourish as people. And so I think that's another thing of, you know, I think that clinical experts like therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists are hugely important. And I think mental health is a lot broader than just that clinical domain. What are the parts that are beyond the clinical domain? Is that what you're saying with us having our own knowledge about what's going on with us? Yeah, because I think that, you know, one, one part of mental health 
is the the biological aspect of it, whether it's like, okay, this this neurotransmitter in my brain is is not producing at a certain level and it's and that's that's like that's not all that clinical work is. I mean, therapy is hugely important. But I think that when you think about how connected mental health with, is with everything, whether it's someone's faith or their physical activity or the quality of their relationships or whether they have purpose in life, I think there are so many things that influence our mental health where you know we can make progress on or we can have like deep wisdom about that sort of clinical experts don't necessarily need to play a strong role in, but can be helpful in sort of guiding that. Thank you, Matt, for for coming, for being vulnerable, for sharing your story with us here at the Good Health Cafe. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks very much, Nikita. It was such a pleasure to be with you. I'm truly grateful to Matt for his willingness to be so open and transparent in sharing his story with us. If you would like to follow Matt's work, he recently started a wonderful blog where he thoughtfully reflects on how to grapple with the complex issues of mental health and racial justice. It is called Pale in Comparison, and I have placed a link to it in the notes. Would you like to share your story with us on The Good Health Cafe? If so, send us a message through our website, thegoodhealthcafe.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a review on Apple Podcasts. Do you know that The Good Health Cafe also has a blog? Subscribe to our mailing list on thegoodhealthcafe.com to get updates when new blogs or episodes are posted. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram too. See you in the cafe next time. Bye.